the Work Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024, and they are bigger than ever. We are looking for campaigns that celebrate strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regional shows, including Latin America. The great news is that you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm Mauro Rodriguez, Works Marketing Director, and I'm so excited that we are launching our first ever Latin America Awards. It's a brilliant opportunity to shine a light on the unique and amazing work I know Latin American brands and agencies are creating. We're open for entries now. Early bear deadline is the 12th of December and final deadline is 6th of February. For more info on the fees and regions covered, head over to work.com to download your entry pack now. Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact is the awards show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to The Walk Podcast. My name is Anna Hamill and I'm Senior Editor for Brands at Walk. Today's episode is part of our interview series, CMO Conversations, which interviews marketing leaders at some of the world's most influential brands. In today's episode, Jonathan Halverson, Global SVP of Consumer Experience and Digital Commerce at Mondelez, is joining us to discuss some of the hot topics in the recently released Walk Marketers Toolkit. In this interview, we talk about pricing in an inflationary market, the creative revolution of artificial intelligence, and brand purpose in a polarized world, among many other things. Enjoy the conversation and stay tuned for more interviews in coming weeks. John, welcome to The Walk Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love if we could briefly start with a quick introduction of some of the brands and what your role is in Mondelez. Sure. Mondelez is a global snacking powerhouse that's primarily focused in biscuits and chocolate. And within the portfolio, we have many billion dollar brands, including Oreo, Cadbury, Milka, uh, as well as uh, Cliff Bar and, and others. So I'd say many of the taste of a nations, you know, at both the local level, as well as many global icons. Yeah, lots of really well-known brands within the portfolio globally. And I know that your company has been really bullish about growth over the last 12 months, despite the wider macro challenges and a lot of the markets that you operate in. What's driving that optimism right now? Well, I think the optimism really comes from a few things. First of all, the strength of the brands. So ultimately, we know that the consumer is facing a more difficult environment and they're having to make choices, but they continue to prioritize these indulgences and these moments of joy and pleasure that many of the brands inside of our portfolio provide. So ultimately, people are still sticking with Cadbury and Oreo and many of those because it's an important part of their daily rituals and lives. We're also in snacking, which is a growing category. I think many of you can look at your regular habits and see that many people are shifting from having three meals a day towards snacking as just more of a commonplace behavior. And then third is we're well positioned from a geographic perspective. We have an enviable footprint in emerging markets. And in those markets, we continue to win. And that coupled with our strong position in mass retail inside developed markets is a winning formula. I know that inflation has been a concern for most companies in your category. And for example, the, the price of cocoa has increased about 50% over the last kind of 18 months to two years. And, and the CEO said it's the one thing that keeps them up at night is, is the inflation of all of those ingredients that you're using. How has that inflationary environment impacted 
how you market your brands over the last 12 months. Is that something you're considering at the moment? Uh, I mean, I think you have to be on top of what's happening in the macro environment. You execute in that macro environment and because it heavily impacts the consumer. And so you have to stay really close to it. I'd say what's really changed. First of all, there's a huge focus on pricing. Uh, So if you're going to ultimately be winning in this environment, you need to be very closely following your pricing, hitting key price points, making sure that you're meeting those pieces. Second, I think that you need to be investing in revenue growth management or RGM. So how are you maximizing all the levers of RGM? Not just, you know, pricing, but also do you have the right price pack architecture? Do you have the right promotion levels? How are you ultimately bringing forth a really valuable bundle? I think the third thing is you have to make sure you're investing behind your brands. And I think Dirk, our CEO, as well as Martin, our chief uh, marketing and sales officer, have been very clear about the need to invest behind our brands and that that investment is what gives us the ability to price and go execute in the market. And then lastly, you have to be managing your costs very carefully. So this is an opportunity. And I think if you've built a really good winning business model, then the best thing you can do is put scale behind it. And I think all the work that we've done on cost discipline over the last several years is allowing us to accelerate and be confident about putting more scale behind the business. A lot of markets right now are suffering from a cost of living crisis. Consumers are changing their habits and grocery retailers in particular are keen to keep their prices down or at least consistent uh, in a very competitive marketplace where a lot of shoppers are now shopping around for better prices. How have you managed the tension of increasing your prices over the last 18 months in response to inflation while also managing the potential impact on your sales volumes? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, this begins with just having really good RGM execution. And really good RGM execution allows you to make very data-driven decisions for how you're going to price, what your price pack architecture should be, and how you're going to go to market. Second, we stand behind one of the world's best sales organizations. These guys are an absolute execution powerhouse. They know their business inside and out. They know their categories. That focus also in two categories of biscuits and chocolate provides us with a lot of strength. Again, it allows for a greater depth of expertise, and there's not a lot of distractions by being engaged in other categories. And those are the things that I think really help you win in this type of environment. Do you have great brands? Do you have smart RGM? Do you have a world-class sales team? And are you obsessed about your execution? What I'm hearing is that marketing can't function alone or in a vacuum in this type of environment. It's essential to have the other foundations in place throughout the business. Is that a fair assumption? I think ultimately CPG is the ultimate team game. I mean, I've had the pleasure of working in other categories, uh, technology, automotive, uh, among uh, finance, uh, among others. And I think what I what draws me to CPG is the strategy component and the team element of it. I think ultimately to win as a CPG company requires great or enterprise collaboration. It requires you to build off of each other. It requires you to all be aligned against the common sense goals. And I think this is where, you know, Mondelez has done a really good job. There's a common set of metrics that we all work against. And that ultimately drives us to be incentivized by the same things and ultimately drive towards the same place. And pulling toward the same goal means uh, the growth that you've been so bullish about over the last year. Yeah, I mean, growth is the reward for a job well done. You know, did you ultimately... And and there's so many things that have to go right in order to achieve that growth. I mean, every dollar that we get is is hard earned all the way from the products that we create to how we market it, to how we sell it, 
uh, to ultimately, you know, bring that cash home through finance and pack, you know, ultimately uh, through the entire supply chain. And uh, everything has to go right in order to win. And you win more when you execute better. How big of a role has building those strong brands played in minimizing price sensitivity for your consumers and also competing against private label brands? Because what we're seeing across CPG is certainly within the economic environment we're in right now is those private brands or those own label brands are taking more market share in a lot of different product categories. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the great asset of Mondelez is the brands. It is an unbelievably... Uh, powerful portfolio and truly the envy, I think, of many other people in the marketplace in terms of the brands that we have. Uh, Your ability to have strong brands is what enables you to price because consumers have clear demand for that and don't accept substitutes. I think closely behind it, though, I would call out is product quality. The work that we have done in terms of building the right recipes, renovating those products, improving their quality versus competition is absolutely essential. Uh, And if you have the right product and you build really strong brands and market them well, the consumer is going to reward you on a very consistent basis. And innovation and new product development is really an essential part of CPG, particularly in a flat market, isn't it? It's creating that newness, that that point of interest to get consumers back engaged in the category and with the brand. Yeah, I mean, I'd say we're fortunate in that being an impulse, we have a regular connection with the consumer. Uh, It's part of a lot of people's repertoire regimens. Uh, It's how they reward and indulge themselves. Uh, And and many of our brands are also just, again, part of that daily routine and repertoire. I I know I'm not going without my Triscuits and hummus on a regular basis. That's an absolute routine in the Halverson household. I I think that, that just plays out in a very powerful way. How do you think about brand building in an e-commerce environment? Because I know that's a major area of your job in terms of digital commerce. Are you taking a different approach to that or are you seeing a lot of the same principles applied to long-term brand growth? Uh, I think that digital commerce is just an exciting new channel. Uh, And it's a critical channel because the consumer is pulling us there. A lot of times, I mean, as we look at our business, our e-commerce sales are our growing percentage of that. And we've stated a public ambition around it being 20% of our sales by 2030. And that requires a fundamental change. But ultimately, what is driving that? The consumer is driving that. They have ultimately moved progressively towards this channel. And if you are going to win market share, you absolutely have to win in that channel. So what really changes? I think that digital commerce, first of all, is a big space. And even when you break it down into smaller pieces and you start talking about EB2B or you start talking about D2C or you start talking about, you know, uh, through retailers and, you know, then that becomes even to smaller pieces. You have how you win with last milers is very different than you win with pure plays is very different than with brick and mortars. So I think it's very essential that you have clear strategy, uh, which is universal across anything that you do. I think that you have to have a clear approach for how you win. Ours is around, we have our flywheel approach that focuses on, do we have the right assortment? Because that is likely going to be different than what you have in brick and mortar. Do you have the right content on those pages? So on the product description pages, and there's a real art and science to that. And there's a lot of math and analytics and work that goes into the teams to make sure each of those pages is truly perfect and best positions our brands then you need to make sure you have search. You need to make sure that your product's available and in stock. There, there's a lot of pieces that go into that. 
and, and the discipline is really important. I think it opens up some new thinking for us uh, because it's a channel that we're still all learning on how to do well. So I think there's other things in CPG marketing that we have built true mastery in. And this is an area where we're still building capability and getting better every single day. And while it may lag behind some of their capabilities, I think we get excited because we see one, the huge growth potential of the channel, and two, that our highest highs, if we can achieve that level of mastery, will pay off in a big way for us. And the job is never done. There's always going to be something new emerging. We've seen generative AI as the buzzword, and I know we're going to get into that a little bit later. But in the digital commerce space, there's always something new to be adapting to. Always. The job is never done, and that's what makes it exciting to put your feet on the floor every day. I think it's why I love doing what I do. It's why I love working at Mondelez. There's always a new brand, a new capability, a new opportunity uh, to kind of pursue With that in mind, where do you see the growth potential for your brands going forward? And how does marketing play a role in making that happen? Listen, I mean, first of all, I mean, we're a portfolio that has a lot of brands. I mean, there's over 240 unique brands inside the Mondelez portfolio when we start across them out. And I think versus a lot of other CPG peers, that is from that revenue that we have is sourced from a wider variety, i.e., in a lot of other companies, a handful of brands would represent 80% of their revenue. In our organization, it's a much broader portfolio. So I think what's exciting for us is, one, our biggest brands have huge opportunity and potential. Oreo still has massive potential. Cadbury, massive potential in terms of it. But there's also all these brands who are between $400 million and a billion dollars that we think can be powerhouse billion-dollar brands. And, you know, that gets us really excited uh, because there you don't have just one or two toys in the portfolio. We have this huge, beautiful stable of brands that we think have huge growth opportunity. I've got to spend a little time with Cliff, which is one of our recent acquisitions. And I have just really enjoyed spending time with that team and learning a lot from them. There's a lot that on what they've done in sustainability, in terms of real brand discipline around distinct assets, that's super exciting for us. And I think that we can learn from in terms of a total portfolio. And at the same time, we can bring our distribution muscle, things that we know in terms of digital marketing to them and help take them to another level. Um, match made in snacking heaven then. Yes. I'd like to jump into um, a little bit about brand purpose now because what we're seeing is uh, a real evolution in the idea of what the purpose-driven brand is in 2023 and moving forward. How, how does Mondelez think about brand purpose or social purpose for its brands? And how are you defining that right now and also evolving that as I think consumer expectations of brands in the world change? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, my boss, Martin, did really brilliantly when he came in is we defined a single way of working. And he wanted to make sure that every brand could be cleanly and clearly articulated on a page, a single page. And working with Oxford SM, we defined what that was going to be. And really how we think about brand purpose is that it is born of two things. And the first is a true product truth. Every one of our great brand purposes are born out of a product truth. And the second element is a human tension. Without the human tension, the brand purpose kind of becomes flabby. It's not that exciting. It's not that real. It doesn't have tension. And you're not going to be able to create great work or great marketing from that brand purpose. 
And so, you know, if you look at Oreo, the product truth is very simple. It's a black and white sandwich cookie that begs to be played with. The human tension is probably quite obvious. It's that as people ultimately age up, they lose their imagination in the world and they lose that sense of playfulness. And so the Oreo brand purpose is all about playful connections between people and making sure that comes to bear. And I think that that creates really brilliant work uh, that you can ultimately play off of. Brand purposes can be as simple as creating playful connections. They're not all about changing the world and ultimately tackling every single issue. But I think playful connections gives the Oreo brand a lot of room to execute in a lot of different areas. Cadbury, you'd see the same. There's a product truth about the product was literally born out of the founders putting a glass and a half of milk into it. And ultimately, their core brand purpose and generosity really speaks to the need for, in generosity, there to be a sacrifice. You give something up in order to get something. And all of our best work on Cadbury that's been awarded around the world, you see true generosity in that true sacrifice. So I think Milka is focused around tenderness. And again, the key thing in brand purpose is, do you have, is it born of a product truth? Is it in a very real place? And is there a human tension off of it that you can ultimately rub up against? That's how you get to a clear purpose. And then you need to consistently execute in everything you do in marketing. It has to come down to literally everything. And again, if you spend time with the Cadbury people, they talk about a glass and a half in innovation meetings. They talk about a glass and a half when they're doing price pack architecture. And, and that, that attention to detail really shows up and really guides what you overall do. More generally, there's a high degree of polarization in the world right now, and we've seen brands get caught up in that, perhaps against their own uh, best intentions. Do you think that this fact has impacted how marketers look at the world of or the opportunity of social good campaigns generally? Yeah, I think that ultimately your brand purpose is what guides you into these places. And there are there is more polarization in the world. There is more divisive. There's less homogeneous audiences in the world. What I think is important is that as you go into these spaces, it be done quite intentionally and at the beckon of your brand purpose. If your product truth and the human tension that you work against take you to those places, then you need to go. What's important is that you do it in a very thoughtful way, that you really think out what your plan will be in terms of contingencies, how you're going to execute. And then as you do go into those spaces, that you really demand executional excellence. I think in those places where you get into trouble is if it's not really tied to who your brand purpose is or your product truth and you go into that space, if you don't commit yourself to a high bar of excellence and if you don't have a plan. And it's I, I really admire a lot of brands do a good job of going in these spaces very authentically and they build an authentic position over time. I think in our portfolio, you can look at what Oreo has done inside the US around diverse audiences born of an execution of a rainbow cookie well over 10 years from ago and how they built up that quite authentic execution in the space. I think Chipotle does a brilliant job within our own portfolio. I'd also point to Cliff as a great example in sustainability where I think there's just really authentic actions and it's really comes from a deep place of product truth and what the brand purpose is as to why they go in those spaces. And they're they tend to be rewarded for their actions and because of their real commitment to it. Mm-hmm. 
Let's jump into media because I know this is a really exciting area for you guys at the moment. Is there anything that you're prioritizing strategically from a technology point of view or a media investment uh, standpoint right now? Yeah, look, now we're in my wheelhouse, my, my heritage and my home territory. So um, I think it's I think being in media is never more fun. Uh, and I, I get increasing joy from it. And I, I just think at some points, I think I've been in media a while. I've seen everything I have to see. But then there's always really exciting stuff that's coming. Uh, I know that we're going to talk a little bit more, but we'll probably wait in now a little bit. I've never been more excited about where Gen AI is going. Um, I sat in Cannes and I had a moment in a Google product release where they talked about their new product, Consumer Demand Gen. And essentially, the product allows you to upload libraries and you get multiple libraries. And from that, it will dynamically produce assets to ultimately primary for lower funnel. And I have to say, I will go, I think we will go back in time. And obviously, AI has been around for a long time. Gen AI became a bigger topic, you know, starting last November and pushing into this year. But I will, I will go back to that moment that I sat there and I feel as though that was the pistol start to the gen I, I to the true artificial intelligence revolution for brand marketing. Because the second you start thinking about creating libraries and them dynamically creating content off of that based on signals, we're in a totally different ballgame. And so I believe that over the next six months, if you do not ultimately put your lower funnel assets on a gen AI loop, you're going to lose. If you don't have a plan to be building your upper funnel assets through Gen AI over the next year to year and a half, I think you're going to lose. And that just puts us all on a really different timeline than I think all of us were ready for. And I, it was that moment. And I just had this clairvoyant moment where it clicked for me and I go, we are moving from ads to libraries and that changes everything. And what is a library? What goes into a library? Does the more assets I put into a library, is there a linear relationship in the outcome or is it exponential? Mm, need to think about that. Then, you know, once I have library, like, well, what is the state of my assets? Are they decoupled? And then Adobe came out saying, oh, you can decouple them. Well, what's my ability to get all the way to production value? And I think right now we're at 95% of production value, though. Coke keeps showing me that maybe I'm off and there is at 100%. Oh, now I need to create a digital twin of every product I have in the portfolio. How am I going to do that? How long is that going to take? You know, I think it just gets you all of a sudden really fired up about what's possible uh, because it will change the game foundationally and in a lot of different ways. How are you using Gen AI tools at the moment? Is it some of that stuff that you just talked about or are you still getting the foundations in place? Listen, I think everyone's still getting the foundations in place uh, inside brand inside the CPG world, at least. I mean, there could be some other more advanced marketers that I don't know, but I think there's a few places where it's interesting. First of all, I think you can point to our Shadow Conyer ad work, which won at can uh, again this year in creative effectiveness and the previous year won the Titanium Lion as a really good example of what's possible. We have My Cadbury Birthday Song, which I'd encourage a lot of people to look at. I think that's my Starling uh, pilot example. And a real shout out to the entire India marketing team for continuing to push the envelope on that side. That's Nitin, Yash, and all the guys on the brand team are cons constantly pushing what I think is possible. And when I see their advertising, I see them always seeing the future of advertising. 
but they're they're limited. There's also Australia's done some great work. Uh, our teams in Europe are exploring some opportunities. The U.S. as well. I think that's like the start of what that is. But those are all isolated pilots. The question is, is who is going to build a core competency and a real ability to produce assets, you know, at scale through Gen AI? Lower funnel first, upper funnel being second. The next area we explore is how do you create Gen AI audiences to evaluate your work? So I think that is something that's in the very near future where we will evaluate concepts through Gen AI audiences. Then very quickly, you can imagine a world in which every single one of our boards or creative test uh, assets we put in creative test were generated out of Gen AI. That's probably something that should happen sooner rather than later, but I think will massively accelerate your ability to test. Um, and, and all of those things are happening. I think those are like the big immediate use cases and, you know, pilots in place. Great. Know it works. Know it can be possible. The question is, how do you build it into a scaled organizational competency? And that is the obsession of, you know, almost every single day, every single week from here for the next 18 months, uh, because it's a race you have to win. And I think what people don't realize is, you know, Gen AI is is uh, is going to be a true form of competitive advantage because once someone starts running it, Gen, they're advertising and marketing through Gen AI with a really strong success signal. Their marketing will just get honed and get so much better every single day, every single minute of, you know, and it just because you run, I mean, big, big fortune 100 market, you're talking about trillions of impressions and each one getting better with every single, and I think today it starts in lower funnel. Soon it'll be all, very easily you can imagine a world with connected television where on Friday night, I traffic out my TV asset and people based on whether they change the channel or not while they're watching my ad, gives feedback signals to my central system. It changes the ad, new permutations go out. I start to learn what different audiences want in terms of version of it. And by Monday morning, I'm gonna wake up, you know, 48 hours later, and have millions, if not totally individual commercials to every single person. And I think that's just a big fundamental shift that you have to be ready for. And that breaks everything. That changes how you do creative approvals, that changes legal systems, that changes you know individual marketing. How do you think about that versus mass and the water cooler moment of everyone having seen the same ad? So new innovation will have to happen in comms planning, new innovation in terms of process for approvals, Managing those assets, cataloging those assets, generation of those assets. The copyright behind it will be a big fundamental question. How did you create those images? What were they built off of? What did you train your models on? I think that's just and a whole new capability. I mean, think about it. Like they don't have people. We don't have people who do this today. So they aren't going to be whole new people that come into these organizations. We're going to have to train up our teams to really be powerhouses to understand this. That was going to be my next question to you. Obviously, there's some of the things you listed are absolutely transformational opportunities for brands to perhaps outsource some of the the more kind of um, low effort kind of duplication work, those types of things out to generative AI. But how do you expect AI to uh, firstly change the shape of your team's skill requirements and B, the type of structures around your organization and around your team to get the most out of these technologies and really bring together that human creativity with the ability to execute at the pace of a machine or a generative AI? Because I think that's the million dollar question, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, million dollar question. And there were seven questions in that question. So like first thing, like one, I am on like week five of thinking about the org part. I have to tell you, because first I had to think about what are the requirements? What are the systems? What is a library? How do I articulate that? And then uh, everyone in this world should be so blessed to have as great of a, of a people lead or an HR partner as I have, because I've got two amazing ones that I get to throw the ball with and they throw it right back at my head. Uh, and I think, you know, some early thoughts that I have on this is one, I think you're going to see jobs fractionalize. There will be skills will fractionalize and people will do parts of it, but it won't be where someone takes something end to end. And there will be a question about where can humans uniquely contribute and create significant value in the process. I, in the foreseeable future, or at least over my three-year horizon that I need to survive if I'm going to be relevant and be there first, think that humans will continue to develop the ideas. I think there's huge, I just work with so many talented, creative people who produce such amazing ideas. You know, Pancho over at WPP, the team at VCCP. Like, I mean, all the guys come up with just absolutely amazing things. That, you still need that. I, I'm not, I don't think Generative AI can create the idea yet. All right, maybe down the road then. Second, if you've ever seen what it takes to create things in Generative AI, these are long prompts. This is not like, you know, want a giraffe. If you want the quality out, you have to put quality in. So there is still a huge human component to build that prompt. I don't think that yet Generative AI can help you, can build that prompt coming probably sooner rather than ID part one in terms of the idea. Then I think there's a lot of work to be done of a librarian. So we talk about having libraries and you need to build large language models. So one who's training all these large language models. And I think in large part, that will be part of what brand people will do. And a lot of the winners and losers will be decided on how distinct your brand is, how well you know it, and how well you can train a model on what's really going on. And a lot of value goes into the quality of that training. So new new job for a brand leader, like train large language models, like don't have that today. So you heard it here first in terms of the skill sets that we need as the young people need coming into the industry now is the ability to harness all of these AI tools. It's not just about the, the foundations of marketing science anymore. It's about being able to blend all of these different skill sets. Yeah. And I think this has been going on for a while. Like, listen, I, I, every time I go, I have a day, I go, we didn't teach this in, you know, pit class. You know, I come from one of the great, you know, schools of marketing, which is Starcom, you know, persons in training, aka Starcom pit. And I miss the day where, you know, Jack Clues and Wiz were supposed to teach me about AI models or consumer data systems. But I think the principles matter. Like, what did I really just say? If we had to, like, the more distinct your brand is, the better it will be on the outside. Like, if you have are not clear about your brand, AI will only distort that fuzziness and only slow you down. So distinct brands still matter. So brand clarity, strategy, foundations, more important than ever, even more important than perhaps in classical marketing, you know? But we are going to have to learn all new skills. We had to learn new skills as we shifted from, onto the internet, as we shifted from desktop onto mobile, as we now move into a new AI age. And I think that's exciting. Like it should be exciting. I have people on my team who have been in their roles or in the parts of the organization for 20, 30 years. And every day, you know, they're just like, John, you found something new. I'm like, I have to keep it interesting 
for them because otherwise what, you know, if all they did was write the same media plans year over year with the same TV networks and digital partners, it wouldn't be all that interesting. But I think that's where you're going to go find advantage too, because once someone gets ahead of you in terms of running models in AI, it is hard to catch them because they will just have perfected it and honed it. So this race is very real. And I don't think there's a lot of credit that you get for being second place because the ability to pass someone in this space is extremely hard because everyone should have access to the same success signals. You might be a little bit smarter about which KPIs you pick, but it should be fairly equal access. I don't see anyone having that much access to any unique KPI or unique information to train your model. And two, computing power is equally expensive and or cheap for everybody. No one's going to have a huge competitive advantage in that they can source computing power that much cheaper than someone else. In some ways, it's a commodity. So therefore, the real advantage is time. Did you get and did you start operationalizing your marketing first? And you've everyone's probably seen that video from Wired of a computer learning how to play Pong right? And you just see how good it gets over time. That's what's going to happen with marketing. And someone, if they get ahead of you, will be that level of Pong player. And no matter how long you play Pong, you will never be able to get up to that same level because they will just have it absolutely perfected. We could talk about this all day, but uh, I want to jump into sustainability and climate change because I know that that's another really big hot topic within your company and you've been on quite a journey with that. What are some of the key sustainability challenges uh, that your company has in adapting to various uh, local market realities, you're a global company, or varying consumer segments? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the key thing in sustainability, first and foremost, is to have a key strategy. And this is where Chris McGrath, our leader on sustainability, has done just an absolute brilliant job of focusing on where things actually matter. And I see you see a big focus on ingredients and on CO2 admissions. And she's been unbelievably detailed as she rolled out our commitments on CO2 to make sure that there was a path to get there. And it wasn't just built on you know hopes and dreams in terms of what we're going to do across factories, across the organization, across suppliers, et cetera. In more of what I see in the ingredient space, it's absolutely critical. We cannot make chocolate without cocoa. You will not be able to get biscuits without wheat. And so there's a lot of great programs that have been put in place with our Harmony Wheat Initiative about how we ultimately sustainably source wheat. And our signature program has to be Cocoa Life. I mean, I think it's the one thing we're most famous for as an organization and a long-term commitment in the organization in terms of the ethical ways in which we source cocoa. And I think just being clear of where you're going to focus, and I give Chris a lot of credit because there, she probably gets pulled in a thousand different directions. There's a lot of different things you could do. And I give her a lot of credit for clear focus, deciding where you're going to make the biggest impact, and then driving the executional excellence. What are some of the different factors or contexts that brands need to be mindful of when implementing sustainability programs? For example, how important is understanding the cultural context of the various markets that you're working in? It's incredibly because everyone has a different expectation for you. And there's a lot of different expectations and a lot of people are going to wish you do a lot of different things. And so I think you have to have a really good understanding of what the expectations are, where those vary by market. Uh, I think the other thing that's important in it is to, to make a real commitment and understand the financial consequences of it. Ultimately, sourcing cocoa that way is a cost to the business, and there's no doubt about it. But you need to find ways 
to make that part of your business and also make sure you're rewarded for that. And I think there are really compelling ways that you can talk about that with consumers and be rewarded for it. Many consumers are willing to pay a premium for a more sustainably sourced cocoa or a more sustainably sourced product and ingredient profile. How do you talk to consumers about that? And then how do you make it part of what you do as a business? You know, I talked earlier about innovation and renovation and upgrading our recipes as part of product quality. You're not going to be successful if you go create a new recipe, but you didn't think about sustainability. So how are you going to make that a part of every single decision that you make in the company? And again, I think this is where having a vocal leader like Chris McGrath, a CMO and my boss who's super committed to it, really makes all the difference in the world. Not taking that one size fits all approach, as you say, it does take more time and it is more resource consuming and financially uh, heavy on the company to be able to do all of this. Is is the balance at this point, you know, it's important to invest in it for the future of the growth of the company. Ultimately, you need to be able to have a consistent supply chain with agricultural stability around all of these products that you have, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an imperative. The consumer wants both. They want a high quality product at a reasonable price and they want it to be sourced sustainably. There's, there's, this is a place they accept no compromise. And I think it's just absolutely essential. My last question for you is a bit of a philosophical one. I want to ask you, what do you see as the biggest challenge and opportunity facing your brands in the next 12 months? If you were to boil it down to one thing each. I think... The opportunity for us is Gen AI, as I've talked about, like I am obsessed because I and I think the race is absolutely on. Um, so that's the ticking clock in my head. Um, I think in terms of a challenge is it is just such a dynamic environment and there is so much change in the world. Uh, and that dynamic environment creates pitfalls and changes and the, ultimately the world can change in a heartbeat. And so I think that forces a certain level of anxiety, agility, and uh, there's just challenge in that to be able to execute against because it's never been harder, I think, to see the future, uh, but never more important to be there as well. So this is where a really good insights and analytics org pays off. So those guys are doing their job, which makes me feel better. Uh, but I'd say ultimately, it's just a very volatile, it's a volatile world that we live in. And those are really important lessons from the last few years in particular, uh, I think that's a great place to leave it. John, thank you for joining us on the Walk podcast. Thank you so much to the team at Walk for having me. That was Jonathan Halverson from Mondelez. Thanks so much for tuning into this interview mini-series. Be sure to read the new Walk Marketers Toolkit report to learn more about what is top for mind for marketers going into 2024. And last but not least, be sure to subscribe to the Walk podcast if you haven't already. Have a great day.